We make decisions every day, but these days those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. On May 25th, 2020, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds, killing him while his four colleagues looked on. This senseless death sparked demonstrations across the country and a tidal wave of new support for the Black Lives Matter movement. George Floyd's murder was yet another painful example of the systemic racism that pervades American life. Floyd's death galvanized people of all walks of life with a level of energy never seen before. And now, with demonstrators in the streets, not just in every state, but across the entire world, there's real hope that change is possible. But it will take each and every member of society to contribute. At GLG, we believe it is important to have conversations that push ourselves and our organization to answer the urgent call to end institutional racism. That's why I'm eager today to talk to my guest who can bring perspective to what will hopefully be remembered as an inflection point and help us understand why it looks different from the many other instances of injustice, police brutality, and racism that have come before. Professor Michael Jeffries is an author and sociologist who works at the intersection of race, culture, and politics. He holds a PhD from Harvard University and is a tenured professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Michael is also the author of three books, Behind the Laughs, Community and Inequality in Comedy, Paint the White House Black, Barack Obama and the Meaning of Race in America, and Thug Life, Race, Gender, and the Meaning of Hip Hop. It's a a real pleasure and an honor to have you on the show with me today, Michael. Thanks. Great to be here. So I thought that we could start by talking a bit about what makes this moment different. The George Floyd killing and the the response in America uh, and around the world has been meaningful and has felt different. But why do you think uh, specifically it seems to have mobilized this movement? Well, I think there are a few factors at play here. The first one is the video. The video is so undeniable and so horrible to watch. It really prevents anyone from casting doubt on the severity of the problem. And when you combine the video with some of the broader circumstances we're living in with respect to the pandemic and its impact on the economic lives and fortunes, especially of black and brown people, it sort of highlights the depth and the dimensions, the multiple dimensions of suffering that black folks in this country are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I think those are two huge factors. And then the the final thing I'll say is when you were able to see the protests and watch the police respond the way they did to the nonviolent protesters, to the media who were just there doing their jobs and were supposed to be exempt from curfew and exempt from retribution at the hands of the police. The violence that the police responded with really only served to reinforce the message of the protesters and to make it appear just as legitimate as it is. So when people around the world saw this, they saw the brutality at a protest about police brutality, it contributed to the momentum and the legitimacy of the movement. So we're actually here on a very special day uh, in America, Juneteenth, June 19th. Michael, could you give us some background on what does Juneteenth represent and what does it mean? June 19th, 1865 is the day the Civil War ended. And that's the day when the message was actually delivered in Texas and some other Confederate states, formerly Confederate states, 
that slavery was officially over. So rather than celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation in 63, many Black Americans celebrate this day as a a day to rejoice and to consider the history of, of slavery. I think it's really important to note that slavery didn't end in 63 with the Emancipation Proclamation, and it really didn't end in 65 with Juneteenth Eater. American slavery, uh, the enslavement of Black Americans, continued long after the Civil War was over because that message did not get through to all of the corners of this country that it needed to. Your entire professional life has been dedicated to working on these issues. What does it feel like to actually be working in this historic moment that we're in? It's pretty wild, actually. <laughs> I mean, it really is. The speed of it has been something to behold. We're talking about Juneteenth as a holiday now in a way that really wasn't in fashion two years ago, even. Uh, it's become a, a pop cultural term kind of all of a sudden, discovered, quote unquote, all of a sudden. It's also very difficult because there's a huge emotional toll. I mean, if you look at anxiety and depression among uh people of color and black folks in particular during the COVID moment, during the George Floyd killing and its aftermath. It's a stressful time to be at work. But I think this awakening that we've seen, and it's a global awakening, really, you have to be able to draw some hope from it. And the hope that I draw from it really is rooted in the spirit, the contributions and the leadership of people who are younger than I am, people who are my students, uh, people who haven't even made it to college yet, but are now living through these times and can see the injustice for what it is. I have to believe that's going to shape their life and their work going forward. And I hope to take as many of my cues as I can from them, because I think they're the ones with the imagination and spirit uh, to see this through. Previous eras, civil rights leaders, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X are, are well known. It feels like this movement perhaps at least at right now, does not have one leader or, or few leaders carrying it forward. And if there is no leader, is that something that needs to be addressed? Does one need to emerge in order for the movement to be, quote unquote, effective? I think there are leaders. They're just local leaders. Some of these activists who are coming forward with this work have already been doing the work in their own communities for a very long time. So if you look at Patrice Cullors, Opal Temeti, and Alicia Garza, who are the three Black women who are credited with really sort of kicking off the Black Lives Matter movement, they were community activists and organizers long before they were associated with Black Lives Matter. And their leadership qualities haven't disappeared now that the movement has grown the way that it has, but they're doing their work on a more local level. You really have people all over the country being empowered to approach their specific issue area in the way they think is best. That's good, tactically speaking, that's a good thing. The trouble is, right, if you need one message, right, one policy goal to emerge from this, you don't really have a spokesperson who can speak for everyone. So we may have to let go of some of those old desires for a singular kind of unbroken flow of messaging and refocus our attention on the more locally specific goals and measures that activists and organizers are fighting for. And what are those goals? So one very sort of practical, pragmatic way to approach this is to look at police use of force. And when you look at police use of force, the racial disparities are horrifying. And the position of the United States relative to countries with similar economies, the rates of use of force in the U.S. so far eclipse those of our sort of economic peers, right? So as a very basic measure, we could say we need our police to be less violent 
full stop. The frequency with which firearms are used, the militarization of police equipment, all of that stuff just needs to go. This is not an effective model of policing. It terrorizes certain segments of the population, and it really doesn't keep us safe. It doesn't have any relationship to crime rates or any of that, right? So that's a very practical matter that I think everyone can get on board with. The bigger picture, right, is about how the criminal justice disparities and racism in that system fits in with a broader American story of systemic racism. Okay, so you mentioned systemic racism. What is it? Why does it matter? Where does it come from? I think this is an important point. When when people say systemic racism or institutional racism, I think sometimes folks think that it means your institution is full of individual racists. I mean, if we can somehow remove the racist people from the institution, then the institution will function the way that it's intended to. But that's not really what this is about, right? Institutional racism means that the system would continue to produce, the institution would continue to produce racist outcomes, even without bad actors being the actors within the system, being appointed to jobs within the system. When you have a public education system, it's supposed to be a public system, but it's set up so that you have local schools, right? Such that wealthy white enclaves are spending X number of dollars per student and less fortunate urban enclaves are spending Y number of dollars per student. It doesn't take a racist in the office of education to produce racist outcomes for those students, right? All it takes is you maintaining the funding system that you have in place. So that would be an example where the institution, the structure of the institution, produces racist outcomes, regardless of whether or not the people who work for the Department of Education are racist. I do want to talk about a couple of other terms that are out there. Intersectionality, what is it and why does it matter? Intersectionality as a term was coined by a legal scholar named Kim Crenshaw. Kim Crenshaw looked at a case in the 1970s where black women employees at GM were suing GM for discrimination. And they lost the case. They lost the case because the court said, look, we have women who have risen to high positions in the organization. And look, we have black folks who have risen to high positions in the organization. Therefore, we're not discriminating against black women. The fact that they couldn't create that category of multiplicity, of intersectional discrimination, right? Black women as a category is a fundamentally different category from just black folks as a category or just women as a category. That's why Crenshaw developed the idea of intersectionality to speak to that hole in the legal system, right? How do you account for the fact that the legal system is blind to the particular experiences of people with this intersectional identity, both black and a woman? Now, since then, The term has been sort of expanded and used a little bit more freely to talk about all the different identities that we hold. Well, I'm I'm from uh, California and I'm and I'm a man. That's not the way that Crenshaw intended it. She really intended it to look for the ways that power structures intentionally miss categories of people and how the language we use erases the experiences of categories of people and why we need to get specific and look for the intersections if we want to understand how some people fall through the cracks. Some corporations and organizations have been criticized for what's been called, quote unquote, performance activism. In your mind, what is the role of corporations in engaging on these issues? I think it's you know important, I think, 
to make the moral statement, even if it's viewed somewhat as performance activism to say, you know, this isn't in line with our values. We aspire to X, Y, and Z, and we're going to work toward those goals going forward. There's really nothing wrong with that. So I don't think performance activism should be dismissed. I think walking the walk is going to be challenging in part because so many of the organizations you're talking about don't have a critical mass of black and brown folks either throughout the organization or the decision-making position. So to me, recruitment is a major issue here, regardless of the industry you're in or what you're trying to accomplish as a business. If you're not recruiting as widely as you need to be to bring a diverse range of people to the workforce, a diverse range of ideas from a diverse range of backgrounds, racial and otherwise, you're never going to be able to have the kind of idea generation that is needed right now when it comes to policy change. You also need to think about cultural norms within your organization in order to get to the change that you want to see. Because if all you're doing is waiting for someone to violate the policy so they can be reported and you're waiting for the reporting stage to correct the problems within your organization, that's too late. You need folks from the very moment they enter the company, the very moment they set foot at their desk, the first day of work to know these are the norms we have in place. We're not going to tolerate misogyny. We're not going to tolerate racism religious bigotry. We're not going to tolerate any of that stuff. And once you set those norms, I think you'll have a a culture change that'll last much, much longer than one person being in power and the transition to the next person being in power and following their individual plan. The individual plans of people in power are only going to be effective when they're reinforced at the grassroots level by the culture that you set. Maybe as a next step or, or, or looking ahead beyond creating space for conversations to take place, developing policies that are reflective of our values. What other ideas do you have for companies to engage on this topic? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned recruitment, so I won't reiterate that. I mean, I think that's a huge piece of it. I think another piece of it is figuring out what unique contribution your organization or your organization and its partners can make to whatever sector of society you're serving. So rather than if you're, I don't know, um, if you're a, a healthcare organization or a healthcare business and you think voting rights is an extremely important issue, rather than like jumping into that fight, I would like to see organizations like that look internally and figure out what is it about our business and our sector of the economy that we can contribute, right? Same thing for the tech sector, right? Rather than kind of jumping into all of these other kinds of issues, look in the mirror, look at yourself and say, How does our sector actually contribute to some of the problems that we see and work on those problems first? Because that's where your tools are going to be best suited to achieve change. You have folks with expertise in this area. You need to unlock their imagination and creativity to get them to unmake and then rebuild some of the machinery that produces the negative outcomes that I talked about earlier. You talked about the need for recruitment and and obviously black colleagues need to be part of not just this conversation, but part of the decision making. On the other hand, we don't want to impose a burden on our black colleagues to educate us and to essentially do a part or full time job in addition to their day jobs. So how do we avoid putting that onus on our black colleagues to, to educate us? I mean, I think you phrase it in exactly the right way. That's an extra job. So that can't be uncompensated labor. If it happens, it needs to be compensated fairly and valued the same way you would value other kinds of labor. And the assumption that all black colleagues, for example, are willing, able, interested in doing that work is a false one. 
So I just don't think that's the way to go, right? Is to look to those folks as problem solvers. If you're a white colleague thinking about having that conversation, this really sort of isn't the time for an initial engagement. It places an unfair responsibility on the black person in question to be an educator and a translator. And that's just stuff that we shouldn't be asked to do under these circumstances or others, frankly. I think maybe the way to go about this is at the leadership level, making it clear that it's an organizational priority to attend to the health and well-being of all of their employees. And if at this moment, Black employees or other employees require additional support, the leadership is receptive to that concern and will provide that support. I think that's the best way to accomplish some of the end goals, because presumably the end goal of such an individual conversation would be to help this person feel supportive. And if that's really what you want to do, there needs to be an organizational effort behind that in order to make it happen. And the other thing I would say is, if what you want to do as an organization is convene such a conversation, hire professionals who do that for a living. Don't leave it up to the individual talents and willingness of your employees to have those conversations in a piecemeal fashion. Actually go out and invest in convening a conversation uh, with professionals who do it with the manner and the seriousness that it deserves. For those of us who are on Twitter, could you recommend three people that you follow on Twitter that are particularly thoughtful on these issues? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one person to take a look at is Sherilyn Eiffel. She's with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, she's an excellent follow. Wesley Lowry at the Washington Post, or formerly of the Post, I think he's at 60 Minutes now. He's fantastic on the media and journalism side of things. And then Adam Sewer at the Atlantic is also just fantastic. He's been an astute observer of this uh, moment in political history for, for a long time and just has a really sharp analytic eye for, for what's going on right now. Michael, thank you so much. It was a great honor and pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Extremely educational and, and a personal thrill to have one of my, my best friends on. So thank you again for joining us. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks. That was Professor Michael Jeffries, author and sociologist and tenured professor of American studies at Wellesley College. Michael told us that George Floyd's death was undoubtedly a catalyst to the current unrest. But coming as it did during a pandemic that already had an outsized impact on black and brown populations, the pain was that much more intense. Add to that the violent police reaction to nonviolent protesters, which produced a new level of clarity and accessibility to what the Black Lives Matter movement has been saying for years. He also clarified that systemic racism exists even when there are no outright racists. The Department of Education is a good example, spending more in wealthy white communities and less in poor black communities. Here, the policy and structure produces racist outcomes, regardless of whether or not the people who work for the Department of Education are racist. Similarly for businesses, Michael told us we must seize the opportunity to examine policies and structural systems, to be proactive, and to make an immediate effort to recruit and diversify our workforce. Michael also stressed that while it's important to have conversations about race, it's all of our responsibilities to educate ourselves, and not fair or appropriate to burden Black employees with having to explain their views or share their experiences. It is each company's responsibility to bring in professionals to help navigate these important conversations. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors featuring another one of GLG's council members. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening.